0: Hey, welcome to the the party. Let's have a back at the party moment. We're looking for a new way to see the world. Hi everyone and welcome back to the back of the party with Megan. This is my podcast brought to you in partnership with my friends over at Pop. If you're listening in via audio, we also have video versions available on Spotify and YouTube. So join the party however you wish. So it's been a while since I took my mid-season break, which was only supposed to last like two weeks. But then it ended up being like four months. I'm so sorry, but I'll cover that next episode because I have a lot to share today. We're going to be talking about the presidential election and, you know, I really mean serious business today, guys. This is the first time you see, like, my laptop out. From here on out, it's going to be, like, serious topics, okay? I'm going to be talking about, like, democracy, all my favorite stuff. So let's dive right in and talk about a new way to vote. So we are going to be discussing the presidential elections today, but as promised in previous episodes, I always want to bring you a different way to Look at the world, right? I want to bring common topics and kind of see if we can reconfigure the way we are looking at them, discussing them. And with this presidential election, the amount of first-time voters, actually a lot, it's ranging from ages of 21 all the way to 33. It's really like the social media generation and with that, like there has just been so much social media content on all these various platforms. And between all these TikToks and podcast appearances from the candidates, I want to do something a little bit different. I am not necessarily going to provide you with a deep dive of my own views about each candidate or their campaigns and ultimately i feel like there are a lot of resources already available for you that come direct from the source direct from the candidates that voters should be tuning into in order to kind of like make their decision and i'm not really interested in telling you who you should vote for or you know who you should be supporting instead i want to discuss what has been some interesting observations that I've made, especially of voters amongst our generation. So we're going to split this episode into three different parts. Number one is going to be what this presidential election has reflected about the state of our democracy here in Singapore, and how I think Singaporeans comprehend the idea of democracy. And with this, I'm going to be giving you a short introduction to some democratic theory, which you know, I've alluded to a lot on social media, and even in the previous episodes, especially I think episode one, but I've yet to really do a deep dive into, and I think this is like the perfect episode to do that. Number two, I want to talk about the impact and role of social media in political discussion. And number three, I want to talk about some things you should consider when you cast your vote. Let's go ahead and get right into the first topic, what I think this presidential election has revealed about democracy in Singapore and how Singaporeans comprehend democracy. And you know, in the interest of time, I'm not going to be able to cover obviously every single activity in this election, But I think one of the things that really popped out to me was this discussion of eligibility, like presidential eligibility. And I think all the discussion around it has been really revealing. The first thing I want to talk about is one of the very first few things that were on the minds of people, which is the $500 million requirement for the private sector. If you're not aware, to qualify as a candidate, the person running must satisfy the presidential election committee by meeting the public sector or private sector requirements. So the public sector service requirements are a little bit more straightforward. As long as you've held office in some like stipulated positions for at least three years, you're good. So that is how Thaman got his eligibility right because he served in all these positions over the years the private sector one is a little bit more complex either you've been the chief executive of a company for three or more years and the company must have at least 500 million dollars in shareholder equity for the most recent three-year period of service as Chief Executive. The other requirement, which is a little bit more flexible and is called the deliberative track, is that the candidate must have three or more years of service in office in a private sector, and the PEC must be satisfied that the candidate has the experience and ability comparable to the person in the former track. This is for candidates who may not necessarily fulfill that $500 million shareholder equity requirement, but after deliberation from the PEC are found to you know be fit to run and be our potential president. So I think this was one of the, the first huge things that I saw bubble up on social media when the presidential election started. I heard a lot of discourse about how this is very elitist. Right um I saw this like Rice Media interview where this one man said how can the president be someone for the people if it's limited to such a narrow elite and a lot of people are saying you know oh this is why like elections are rigged or like oh George could didn't pass eligibility because he's the only true opposition or like non establishment candidate very largely the common consensus is that $500 million is very arbitrary and it's a very difficult thing to achieve. And because there, you know there isn't much transparency on how the deliberative track works, that also, I think, contributes to this idea that the process is a little bit either elitist or a bit rigged in order to favour establishment candidates like Mr. Darwin. So let's shelf that for now and then let's talk about the next thing that caught my attention with regards to this and then I will later on sort of like compare and contrast the two. So the second thing I want to talk about is Tan Kin Lian and everybody knows his whole pretty girl's controversy and I think a lot of like analysts, professors even I mean just general public were talking about how the PEC had issued him the certificate of eligibility without actually what it seems like a thorough investigation of his social media. One of the major groups that that brought forward this idea or like, you know, really made their statement was aware, who said that the assessment process for the presidential candidate should not only take into account financial and management qualifications, but wider societal impacts, and they felt that this was the PEC endorsing or saying that it's okay to make these sort of comments, you will still be given a platform. And I gathered some quotes from very popular analysts like Dr. Jillian Cole, who said that it's a learning point and perhaps the rules or processes can be adjusted for the next time given what has happened. Other professors like professors from NUS has said that there are good reasons for the PEC to consider what an applicant says and does on social media as a large part of daily life happens online. Professor Benjamin Ong from SMU said that social media checks should in principle form part of the PEC's investigation into whether someone is of integrity, good character, and reputation. So after these you know Facebook posts started coming up, what I noticed was a lot of Singaporeans being very very outraged that the PEC had even allowed him to be eligible for running. And a lot of people said, you know, his eligibility should be revoked. There were a lot of criticisms about the PEC. They should have done more thorough checks. And when I took a look at both of these incidents, you know, on the one hand, people saying that the PEC is way too stringent with their requirements. And then on the other hand, people saying that the PEC is not stringent enough. I started to feel like there was a real lack of understanding about democracy and the essentiality of plurality to democracy. And I want to get into this from the perspective of political theory. So before we dive into that, I think a lot of us, even myself, before I, I went into my political science education, democracy is mostly thought about in terms of like procedural decision-making. Getting to vote who's in cabinet, getting to vote who the president is. In the popular imagination, people think of democracy as this process of like getting to a consensus and then what are the resulting institutions that come from this consensus, right? And in fact, it's not just within non-academic spheres. Even within academic spheres, people like Samuel Huntington describe democracy as a form of collective decision making through fair honest and periodic elections in which candidates freely compete for votes which implies the existence of civil and political freedoms to speak publish assemble and organize and what i've done with a lot of my research and what i want to contend here today in this podcast episode is that that is a very narrow definition of democracy and i have wanted to propose to listeners something a little bit more radical. So let's get into radical democratic theory. And one of the ways that we can define democracy in, in this you know line of, of thought is that democracy is the radical, deliberate creation of political space and collective action as a realization of the political equality amongst people. Okay, so I know that's a lot. Let's sort of break it down, okay? Like I mentioned, just a little bit before, a lot of people think that democracy is about consensus, right? But when we talk about democracy in the more radical sense, what we want to do is we want to acknowledge that people are, are very different, people have a lot of different opinions, people have different priorities, and that is what we call plurality. And what democracy seeks to do is, through these political processes, privilege plurality. And what comes out of plurality may not necessarily be consensus, in fact, A lot of theorists say that the essence of politics is dissensus, so the opposite of consensus. It is about coming together and and speaking and discussing and disagreeing, but then trying to think of new ways to act and speak politically. And in order to make that happen, what needs to also happen is the creation of political space in which people can come together, speak freely, think together, and then make decisions collectively through that process. Instead of it being, you know, a a top-down process where officials make decisions for us and then it trickles back down to us. Instead, what we should be doing is discussing together and then from there, building our institutions, building our norms. And there's something very fundamental to... Um, This creation of space And that is equality And when I say equality I don't necessarily mean natural equality I don't mean, you know All of us are, are born the same All of us have the same thought. I want to zoom in on, on this theorist that I really love. Her name is Hannah Arendt and she writes that society expects from each of its members a certain kind of behavior, imposing various rules, all of which tend to normalize its members to make them behave to exclude spontaneous action or outstanding achievement. And what she's trying to say is that any equality we have in society is not real. In modern society, we understand equality as being the same, as having sameness. And that strips us of the plurality that we have as humans. And it's important to to acknowledge that, right? Because if we were all the same, if we were all born the same, then politics would really just be a process of administration, right? It would be a process of thinking, okay, everybody is the same. What is the most efficient way to get to this common goal? It wouldn't be a process of trying to figure out What values should we have in society? What values should our institutions reflect? How do we want our institutions to function? How do we want our society to look like? And in fact, it is this natural inequality that therefore necessitates that we establish this political equality, that we establish a space in which we can all freely and collectively enter into to affirm our plurality and to kind of shatter that illusion that democracy is just, you know, oh it it's just like it just happens because, you know, we're all equal and therefore we should all be democratic and we should all, you know, come together and collectively agree on things. So politics and political processes have to rest on this understanding that while we are all naturally unequal, we create these spaces where we can all appear and, and we can all be politically equal. Uh, in in our speech in our ability to think in, in our action in order to construct a common world that takes into consideration this plurality that we have and you know if you've been listening keenly you might notice that this democracy sounds very very difficult and it is such a very challenging regime within democracy there are a lot of paradoxes, and there there are two that I want to draw out in particular. Number one is that we have to come together in our differences, whilst also understanding that we have a common topic to discuss. These common topics can include what institutions can govern us, how we should be governed, what are the limits to our public action. We all have different views, but we all act in the interest of constructing this common world in which we can all live and coexist in. And the second paradox is what Castoriadis calls the tragic regime. Democracy is a regime of self-limitation. It is a regime where people can do anything they want, but people must know that they shouldn't just do anything that they want. And in that sense, self-limitation and democracy is very important, right? But that's exactly the point, that it is self-limitation. It is a limit that we have all collectively discussed and agreed on, and not a limit that an external body, like a government, has put on us and, and forced us to accept. So going back to the false notion of natural equality, you know, this idea that we all have this natural sameness to us, this idea that sort of strips us of plurality. I think this really sees itself in Singapore politics, where, you know, we are freeing to all have these common goals, common values, and in reality, I think a lot of us actually just accept state narratives, accept state ideologies, without really questioning if These things are are truly our goals. And I just want to push you to to think about if you or society has ever really engaged in truly democratic and autonomous processes of discussing our goals, debating our norms in a shared public space that affirms our plurality, starting from a point that doesn't just assume we all want the same thing, that we all think the same things, that we're all working towards the same goal. Has there ever been a point in time where... We have actually come together as a society and said, hey, we have all these different interests, all these different backgrounds, but how do we want to be governed? How do we think our institutions should function? How do we want our world to look like? How do we want our society to look like? And I think you really see this in in the two incidents that I, I brought up earlier, right? On, on the one hand, Singaporeans feel dissatisfied that decisions that are being made for them over who should be eligible or not. They say that, you know, the 500 million is too stringent, that, oh, non-establishment people are not allowed to run. Like, this isn't right, this is rigged. But then on the other hand, they are also consumed with this idea of the common good. That everybody who runs for president has to go through this very stringent check Everything from like their financials, to their background, to their social media even. And this idea that people in politics have to go through these stringent political screenings is not new. I think we've definitely seen it more of late. And what I want to point out is that you cannot support democracy but then be upset about democratic outcomes. The idea that it's the job of the government to filter through the public space on behalf of citizens and make sure you know we're only choosing from the best pool of candidates But then, when the government chooses who they think is the best pool of candidates through their own selection criteria, then the citizens are also not happy. So on the one hand, you have people criticizing the government for their very stringent eligibility criteria, and then on the other hand, you have people saying that the government is not stringent enough. I mean, part of it, I think, is a very fundamental issue, right, in which the government's standards seem a little bit arbitrary and there really isn't much transparency behind what goes on. I think a lot of Singaporeans also feel like they've not had a say in in how our political processes work. And that is why I think this is so revealing of the democratic deficit in, in our society today. And I think this is precisely why It is so important to have active social political discourse. I think there is this air of hopelessness amongst Singaporeans. A lot of people feel like uh, whatever we do or say won't really change our system. You know, we feel very like defeated. We feel like whatever we do doesn't really matter. And that is true, I think, in the sense that Singapore is not really a democratic regime. We are a competitive authoritarian regime and even the most authoritarian of regimes need a certain level of public support. There is really no regime, no matter how authoritarian that is, isolated from public pressure. They need support to stay in power. Taking that into consideration, Singaporeans need to think about what behaviours and beliefs they hold that actually come to support the regime that we have, that come to support these people in power. So going back to, for example, like the Tan Kin Lian saga, right, I think Social discourse exists precisely because we have so many different views and beliefs and ideas. And I think an openness in, in discussing what sort of norms and values should be held in society or by our office holders is a far more democratic process and a far more autonomous process than just telling the government that they should decide for us who is fit to run. They should decide who is of good character and, and therefore can hold office. And at the end of the day, Voting reflects conviction. The numbers will will really show where Singaporeans are at. So you may not be able to change the regime type all at once, but your vote can be a reflection of your autonomy, of your plurality, the fact that you hold different views than whatever candidate is running, than what the government says the president should be like. But at the same time, it does take critical consideration. And I want to talk about um, a recent text that I've read. It's titled... Critical Models by Theodore Ardono. And what he was saying in one of these chapters was that critique is essential to democracy. He says, mature is the person who speaks for himself because he has thought for himself and is not merely repeating someone else. He stands free of any guardian. And when Ardono talks about maturity, political maturity, what he's talking about is the power to resist established opinions and also to resist existing institutions, to not take for granted that they just simply exist. To not take for granted that they exist and therefore this is how it's always been and how it always will be. And when he talks about critique, he's talking about the ability to distinguish between what is known and what is simply accepted by people because it's the convention or because they've been made to accept this. By people in authority or by systems of authority. And this concept comes from the Greek word krino, which means to decide, and not just to decide, but to decide through a carefully considered and complete assessment by someone intimately knowledgeable of the issues at hand. And while we are on the topic of critique and critical consideration, I think this brings me very nicely into my second point about the role and impact of social media in this presidential election. And I think in Singapore politics more widely. So I mentioned just now that Castoriadis says that democracy is a regime of self-limitation. In a democracy, people can do anything but must know that they should not do anything. And when it comes to discourse, I think the implication here is that the discourse we engage in necessarily calls for some critical self-reflection. And I think as a content creator myself, this is especially the case for content creators, that I think a lot of content creators need to exercise social responsibility a lot more, but I will get into that later. But I think over the course of the presidential elections, a question that I've been chewing on is whether I think people have the responsibility to be politically aware or to educate themselves politically, right? Because I see a lot of like street interviews, for example, of uh, people like asking Singaporeans, you know, do you know what the president does? Or like, uh, how will you be voting for the president? And surprisingly, a lot of people don't actually know what the president does. I think with, in conversations with friends, you know, a common sentiment that I've been hearing is that, you know, not everybody has the resources to, to go ahead and do that. And I thought about it a lot. But then I, I started to, you know, look back at some of, of the materials that I've read. And I kind of think that that's not exactly true. I think the kind of political awareness and, and education that I'm talking about is very different to to what we would conventionally think of when we think of education. For example, I've just spoken about this idea of political equality and I think part of that is, is also this acknowledgement that everybody has the innate capability to be autonomous, to, to question and to act critically. It is not some like special resource that only some people have access to. Like Only if you have a college education, then you are well-equipped to think critically or... Only if you are surrounded by the right people who have a good enough educational background, then you are well-equipped enough to have discussions. And I think that that's what most people think, but I think a lot of people actually either forget or don't even realise that they have the ability to be critical. They have the ability to to think and to question. And I think that this stultification is in large part a, a failure of our civic education, and some of the more repressive institutions built into our system. So I want to challenge this thought that some of you might have, right? And I'm going to go back to Adorno, right? He says, Critique is being departmentalized. It is being transformed from the human right and human duty of Every citizen into a privilege of those who are qualified by virtue of the recognized and protected positions they occupy, and he also says that you know one of the rhetorics that these sort of regimes like to push is that whoever practices critique without having the power to carry through his opinion, and without integrating himself into the official hierarchy should keep silent. And I think that's really something that we have seen in Singapore for for many, many years now. I think one example that, that really stuck to my mind since I've heard it was something that Go Chok Tong said to Catherine Lim in 1994. He said, those who want to comment regularly on politics and set the political agenda should become politicians themselves and take responsibility for their views. If a person wants to set the agenda for Singapore by commenting regularly on politics, our view has been that the person should do this in the political arena. My view is, if you are really interested in politics, you want to influence politics, then please come into politics. This idea that, you know, you have to be in politics if you want to speak about politics, to me is absolutely ludicrous, right? I mean, for for reasons that I have, you know, already spoken about. So now I want to tackle this issue from a slightly different angle, and I want to draw on this concept, um, by Jacques Ranciere, uh, also a democratic theorist. Let's discuss what we think of education, right? So typically, when we think of education, we think of teachers who are smarter than us, and therefore have the authority to teach us, right? Or to impart new knowledge to us, who are well-equipped to teach us new knowledge. And Ranciere actually suggests that this typical teacher-student relationship is a form of stultification. It is a process of the superior intelligence of the teacher, commanding the inferior, in inverted commas, intelligence of the student. And this way, it divides the world into two types of people. People who know and are capable of learning, and people who don't know and are not capable of learning. And I think we really see this in in Singapore's society, right? When we look at the ways in which education and, and learning is assessed, how do we split people up with streaming, for example? We very much split them up according to who we feel is learning well and can learn, and who we feel isn't learning well and, and can't learn. This sentiment has, has slowly been changing over the years, and I think in some sense, you know, the government has made good progress on that, but I think that is still very much how we view education, right? But Roncier suggests that all this process shows us is who can think the way that they have been taught. And he suggests that actually the best schoolmaster is the ignorant schoolmaster. He suggests that the best teacher is the teacher who is ignorant, because teaching is not about transmitting knowledge, but a relationship, again, of plurality. And this is radical, right? Because it's a more emancipatory perspective on education. It's one in which both the intelligence of the teacher and the student are seen to be equal. And in this relationship, the teacher really just has two fundamental jobs. The first job is to stimulate critical thinking in the student, to help them Become aware or help them manifest an intelligence that was within them, but they were not aware of. And the second role of the teacher is to verify that the the work and the learning is done with attention and not simply because they are under constraint. And a useful concept that Ranciere uses that we can think about here is this concept of the third thing. He says, in the logic of emancipation between the ignorant schoolmaster and the emancipated novice, there is always a third thing a book or some other piece of writing, alien to both and to which they can refer to to verify in common what the pupil has seen, what she says about it, and what she thinks about it. And Ron says the teacher doesn't actually need to know anything about the book. What the book does is to demonstrate that these two people have intelligence in common, to be like a common material for both, to demonstrate the equality of intelligences, to demonstrate that both can critically think about a book and that no one person has the right answer on what the book is about. And so in this process of education, the goal here isn't transmission of information. The goal is to mutually verify each other's intelligence and each other's plurality. So maybe let's think about something like a piece of literature. Who's to say that any one person really has like a monopoly on on what the book means or what it should mean? What he's saying is that The book can simply be a third thing. The teacher has their own interpretation of it, and the student has their own interpretation of it. And what both interpretations are doing is to affirm that both of them have the capacity for critical thinking. And so he summarizes three questions of the teacher. Number one, what do you see? Number two, what do you think about it? And number three, what do you make of it? And I bring these things up because I think um, these questions and, and perspectives are things that we should take into consideration when we think about our autonomy and, and the ways in which we vote. When I say that I think people have a responsibility to think critically and educate themselves politically, I don't mean that you know there is some specific form of education that needs to be done. Like you know uh, people need to dedicate like this certain amount of time to doing like A B C D so they will be more politically aware. I think it's really about critically thinking about what we see why we think the way we do, our beliefs, and why we perceive politics the way we do. And not just being like, oh okay, I vote establishment because I like establishment, or I vote anti-establishment because I hate the establishment. I think this process of of questioning and of, of really critically thinking about the world around us and how we perceive the world, is really the most important resource that we have available to us. And I don't think that this is something that only a select group of people have or, or you know, one group of people have more than the others. I think this is something that is available to everyone. And I don't blame people for, for not recognizing this because I think, like I said, we do live in a society in which this belief in ourselves has very much been solidified for, for a variety of reasons, right? But I hope that whatever I'm saying in this podcast pushes you and encourages you to to think a little bit more about the autonomy that you have and, and how you can practice and act upon this autonomy when you vote. Not just in this presidential election, but, you know, for, for all, all the elections that, that come after this as well. And so while we're on the topic of political responsibility and this responsibility for critical self-reflection, I think this is really where my gripe with content creators comes into play. And I say this also coming from the inside, right? Being a content creator myself and then having access to a lot of the ways in which the industry works and a lot of the incentives that content creators work with are, are driven by. I think that one of the things that content creators profit off is this illusion of relatability, of caring for their audiences, for wanting to provide value to their audiences. But then what I'm noticing as well at the same time is that when they are presented with these opportunities to speak directly to potential people in authority, right, to these presidential candidates, and to raise up real issues, to use their platform to encourage critical thinking, what I'm finding instead is that I feel a lot of content creators are actually squandering this opportunity in, in a very valuable way opportunity at that. Some of the content that I've seen include like this one content creator asking Thaman to match make their friend. Oh, which side is best side? West side or east side? What I cannot help but feel is that what these content creators are trying to do is obviously to garner clicks, garner views. And to an extent, I, I get it, right? Because their whole job obviously is is to, to search for that reach, make content in pursuit of, of that reach, right? Of-, of clicks. Or you know, I've seen one content creator Having the opportunity to speak with presidential candidate, and then outsourcing the critical thinking to ChatGPT, and in that way, very much reducing political issues to a matter of statistics, because at the end of the day, that is exactly how ChatGPT works: statistics. And then in other cases, some creators have huge opportunities of, you know, having an extended conversation with presidential candidates, like on a podcast, for example, which has a much longer duration, and in that way, you have more opportunities to ask big questions but then when they do interview these candidates there is little to no pushback on their thoughts. For example I watched this one podcast that interviewed Han Ken Dian on, on you know the pretty girls saga and the hosts were to my shock blaming the reaction around it to wokeism to late stage capitalism. This person said people are, are too woke because we are in late stage capitalism so you know all their basic needs are fulfilled so therefore they want to, like, find problems with that? Th- that actually doesn't make sense because late-stage capitalism, it refers to, like, the decline of capitalism. It means that, like, there is something about capitalism that is now breaking down. And if capitalism is breaking down, the system in which all our activity rests on is breaking down. How is it that people are so free to go and talk about social issues and what they call wokeism? And it frustrates me that social discourse is being reduced to this idea of wokeism. And I think it really goes to show that people are just simply not used to social discourse. That is how out of touch people are with criticality and with their own autonomy. That a free exchange of views, that a free expression of values is now being misconstrued as wokeism. And to that extent, I think a lot of content creators also play it very very safe. Either by making content with presidential candidates that is not at all political, or is very politically neutral, not challenging at all. And you know, this is always a question that, that I've struggled with a lot as a content creator and as a consumer of content. What is the responsibility that comes with having a platform? I think in many ways, content creators are extremely privileged with the work that they do. And I think this privilege also extends to the privilege of having a platform, of of reaching so many people on a daily basis. And I acknowledge that this view is very much based, obviously, on my own political views and my own views on democracy but I do think that content creators because they play on this relatability and of, and of caring for their audiences that then when it comes to an event like this that I think there is a certain amount of responsibility that, that should be taken on when you choose to accept an opportunity with a presidential candidate when you choose to in this way enter into politics I think it's very very naive to say that you know they are just content creators you know Like at the end of the day, content creators just want reach, like they're just doing what's good for them. I think that is a little bit selfish and a little bit naive because when you start to create content for presidential candidates, you are very much entering into the political process. And I think it's very, very important to think about what you want to do with that voice, what you want to do with the action that you're taking as you are entering this political space. And while I say all of this, I think, you know, there is also a benefit to seeing these more, like, personable sides of the candidates. I, you know, I don't think that should be discounted, and I think there is a time and place for that. Platforms like Mothership or even Zodapop's uh, Political Prude ask a lot of really fun questions to the candidates that I, I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Because at the end of the day, the president is also supposed to be, like, a unifying figure, right? So I do think that there is a time and place for that, but then I, I think I would just like to challenge whoever is listening whether you're a content creator or a consumer of content, where that time and place is, or how we want that kind of content to look like. And you know, I think this extends far beyond the things that I've mentioned. There are so many other things that I wish I had the time to comment on. For example, I think there is a lot to say about the ways in which gender politics has come into play. I see the way the people speak about the potential first ladies, and I think that it is very, very revealing of the ways in which women in politics are seen, women in power are seen, or women adjacent to politics and power are seen. And I think Even this process of of considering what what is being put out there and how you are contributing to the conversation is very much a a process of the social discourse and of, of claiming that autonomy that I've spoken about. So at this point, you know, I've talked a lot about making sure that voters, that you guys are making efforts to educate yourself, to think critically, as well as how content creators can leverage on their platform. So before we close off, I think I just want to take the chance to give you the listener, a quick crash course on the president's roles and their relationship to the government. Like I said, I've seen so many street interviews where Singaporeans really just have no idea what the president does, what their role is, and I think a lot of people are also very, very confused about what the president's relationship to the government is and whether they can or should be non-partisan. So I'm going to start off with just giving you a really, really quick crash course on the president's duties. And these fall into three categories, right? The first is ceremonial. And this includes things like meeting foreign dignitaries, um, appearances at like NDP. The second role is constitutional. And under the President's constitutional duties, there are discretionary powers and non-discretionary powers. So the discretionary powers include things like being able to veto senior appointments in public service and key organs of the state. And as many people know, they are the second key to the reserve. So this ensures that drawdowns from our reserves will not compromise Singapore's ability to have sufficient resources in the future. And there are other duties like authorising investigations by the CPIB that is relevant in cases of like, corruption. And then there are non-discretionary powers, including things like granting clemency or appointment of ministers, which is exercised on the advice of the cabinet. So the third one is is what I want to talk about a little bit more, and that is the community duties. And this is why we keep hearing this narrative that the president is a unifying role. What the president will have to do is to champion unifying causes. We see that in things like different charities or when they go out and do you know, different sorts of community outreach. I think that's something really worth thinking about, right? Especially in the case of a candidate like Tan Kin Lian, who says things like, oh, you know, 50% of women should be homemakers, should stay at home, and, and Singapore would be far better off that's sweet. And at times you know puts forward ideas that are a little bit racist, a little bit xenophobic. And I think these are important to take in consideration because if the president is meant to be a unifying role, if the president is meant to champion social causes, is a candidate like that really well equipped to unify different parts of society, different races, different genders? I think that's something to think about. Which of these candidates are, are the most well equipped? in your opinion, to champion the values that you stand for and to champion values that you think Singapore society should stand for and and the values that should unify us. And you know, bear in mind that the president has no executive powers, which means that they cannot make policy changes. They do not write policies. And so when presidential candidates talk about things like housing, about inequality, we also need to think about what is actually going to be within the scope of their job. What can they do? in the community given that they do not have the power to make policy changes? How effectively can they fulfill the campaign promises that they've been making? And how effectively can they fulfill the things that you want to see in a president? So I think what I've really been trying to do this episode right is to introduce new perspectives to you that I've not seen in popular discourse, in public discourse, whether it be on social media or in the news, and introduce new concepts, new theories that I hope will push you to realize that that you are capable, that you do have the ability to think critically, to question the things around you, to question the candidates, to question the systems, to question the values that are being put forward, and at the end of the day to really exercise your autonomy, and to remember that you exist within a society that is made up of a plurality of people, that people are not going to agree on a lot of things, that people come from so many different experiences, so many different perspectives, and I think this plurality is is exactly what makes democracy and social discourse so important i think the value of social discourse has has really taken a hit in recent years because people chalk it up to just being like oh people being woke i I really think that that does a disservice to social discourse and i hope that this episode really serves as a reminder to you that that your speech that your critical thinking is so so important that this is an everyday act that that you can engage in and that when you go into the polling booth this first of september that your voting really reflects your conviction the views and the values and and the things that we want to see in office and because of that your vote is so so important and especially if you are a first time voter that you will take this chance to really think about what it is you believe and what it is you want to see and then have that be reflected in your vote and so with that we've come to the end of this very very impromptu episode and so now that i've you know, kickstarted this half of the season. I have no choice but to continue the rest as well, which I'm actually very, very excited about. I hope that you guys have enjoyed this episode, that it has really, you know, pushed you to, to think very differently about um, this presidential election and, and about your opportunity to vote in, in future elections as well. Thank you very much for joining me on this party and if you want to see more content you want to stay updated follow us on Instagram at backoftheparty don't forget to share this episode with your friends on social media any form of support really really helps me to keep the show going and I would love to hear your thoughts as well feel free to drop me a DM um, on my socials at Mickey Cha or on the podcast socials as well so I will see you very shortly on the next episode of Back of the Party with Megan and in the meantime make the polling booth a party of plurality (laughs) slay! Bye!